Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Tennis Channel Insight and on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios. Joined again as we get into the hardcore season in the North American part of the region. Clay court event still happening. Jimmy Arias joining the show. First time we're going to do this on camera, but good to sit down with you before you call some matches in Atlanta. Thanks for coming back on the show. My pleasure and... Which camera is it? That you're looking at the, yeah, you're looking right. at the ISO right, right there. I'm going to yeah. look at you if that's you look okay. At, yeah, yeah, even better, yeah. even better. Okay. I was doing some research on this part of the year, and it didn't seem like you had the most success in the few matches you played in these cities. I looked Atlanta up, and it was Todd Martin, a tough loss there, and it was Andres Gomez. But I bring up Gomez because yesterday I saw in the tennis history thing, was the anniversary of you beating him in Indy to win your clay court title. Well, you're really digging <laughs> deep, first of all. Second of all, I'm going to give you my excuses for Atlanta because okay. they are kind of interesting. Yeah. I had wrist surgery okay. in the year I lost to Todd Martin, and Atlanta was my first tournament back, and I still wasn't at 100%. Not to say that I would have beaten Todd anyway at that particular point in time. He was playing pretty well, and I wasn't anyway, but that made it particularly difficult. And then in the Gomez match the next year, this is the part that's really <laughs> crazy on my part and kind of why I retired yeah. when I retired. So okay. because my ranking had dropped, the way I, I didn't have a protected ranking because I was an idiot, basically. <laughs> okay. I, I didn't play after the U.S. Open in 91 because okay. my wrist was hurting. Mm-hmm. I decide I'm going to try Australia. So I go play Australia. Okay. I lose first round. My wrist is hurting. I play one more tournament in Memphis, lose first round to someone I didn't think I should ever lose to in a million years. <laughs> and blame the wrist, went to the doctor and had wrist surgery. So I played two tournaments okay. in that. Missed four months, played yeah. two tournaments, missed another four months. No protected ranking. So I'm having to play qualies all the time. Right. And it just so happened that every time I qualified, I would play the Monday night feature match. Not someone name? they gave the wild card to. I didn't get a wild card, <laughs> but me. Who yeah, qualified. Yeah. And that would make me angry every time. And the match against Gomez was probably the fourth time it had happened in this, you know, in the trying to make a comeback. And I actually went to the tournament when I saw the schedule. And I go, I'm not playing. <laughs> give... The guy you gave a wild card, play him Monday night. I, you know, I'm yeah. not playing Monday. Yeah. And they go, well, that's what the schedule is, and you can either show up or not. And I swear to you, I debated right up until the minute whether or not I'm going to go play the match. That's how bitter I was, and it was a horrible attitude to have. So it, it definitely lent to – because as soon as I start not doing well against Gomez, I um, was thinking, I should have just defaulted. <laughs> And that's why you're one of the best storytellers in tennis, because there's a backstory to all this. And and I brought that up because, you know, Hamburg's another one. I checked the archives. You only had one match there. Nystrom got you. Yeah. But I went it in the history. Snowed. Really? It snowed that day. Wow. Yes. 
I was going to say the, that was another hilarious story. I've got snow. too many stories every single tournament because that tournament I lost to Nystrom six one in the third. Okay, and yeah. I got very tired even though it was snowing. <laughs> yeah, and one of the players <laughs> said to me, "You lost that match because you're out of shape. I bet you you can't do twenty five sit ups." And I go, "Of course I can do twenty five sit ups, but I just finished the match." And then about sit-up number 12, I cramped. <laughs> so it looked That's like hilarious. he proved his point. That's hilarious. I just, I looked at the head-to-head, and you guys played in a Grand Prix that had like a 16-14 third set. That one was a tough there, one, too. But, I mean. And just, I also got him in five sets at yeah, the Open. Yeah, you did. So that was, uh, you got him the next year in the 83 at the Open. But a, ma- a third set match. Grand Prix was different, but just how much tennis has changed. You're playing a best of three that's going 16-14. Not even a final. No, that was rough. I remember that match again. The guy never missed, so Mm -hmm. I was exhausted again. Well, the stories are are one of the reasons we like to have you on here, and especially with this part in the tennis calendar where we're starting the slow road to the U.S. Open, but there's still events worldwide. Six different tournaments, the, the double in Hamburg for the men and the women, but everyone else is pretty spaced out and just judging by your career and what players today are, are weighing, obviously there's money reasons too, but figuring out your schedule now, when you were at this point in your career, was it more so where am I comfortable? How can I build bad habits? Or would you, were you just someone that said, I'm trying to play hardcore and getting ready for that U.S. Open push? No, I was actually, I think partly because of the way the rankings were back when I played, especially when I started, it was an average system. So you divided your total points by 12 no matter what. So you play at least 12 tournaments every year. But then every tournament above 12 added to the divisor. So it was you were putting your ranking at risk every tournament above 12 oh. because mm. you didn't want a one-pointer, we, yeah. we call them. So I tended to want to play on clay because that was the surface that I had the most confidence on. And I think that's why the tour was very – I could go a whole year and not see a fast-court player except at the – U.S. Open. Really. Yeah, because you, you know how, why there's like the outside view of this is that why are there clay court tournaments? Like we're playing for the U.S. Open. This is crazy. But I get like someone like Casper Ruud who has so much success. Why would you play on hard court if there's opportunities to play and win in other services that you're better at? What's funny is for Casper Ruud, I, I would make the argument that he should be on hard court because Defending. he's got yeah. finals of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Open and he's learn to play well on the Mm -hmm. hard court. So you might as well get yourself as ready as you can for that tournament. But you can correct me. I don't know. But last year when he made that run to the finals, I think he he did the same schedule. He was still still doing this. He had a a decent run in Canada. I think he beat Felix. He did. That kind of was like, oh, that kind of opened the door. But it was still... But he was coming from clay. Yes. He hadn't had much hard court work until Canada. So obviously, you know, you can do it that way. And winning Mm -hmm. matches is the most important thing to me. Mm -hmm. When you're winning matches, you have confidence and you can keep winning regardless of what surface you're playing. Well, there's some great matches all around the globe last week and into this week. And and I want to start with, you know, you called his match last night in Atlanta. Chris Eubanks back in the States, back on the tennis court for the first time since that dream run at Wimbledon to the quarterfinals. She kind of hinted at something that I wanted to go deeper in. His life really did change. His ranking got higher. Now, with all the accolades and deserved praise, comes the expectation. So what advice would you have for him to stay in the moment and you know stay as that committed tennis player going day to day and not you know lose focus or feel those weight of expectations on you now? I actually think he has a perfect attitude. When I listened to his interview after the match, the things you just said are the things he was sort of saying. He's He's got that full 
confidence. Mm -hmm. He knows that he can win matches now at the tour level. He really had been out six years and he'd only won a handful of matches mm -hmm. up until just now this year. So I feel like some people take on that pressure of I'm supposed to win right. when he hasn't had to, he wasn't thought of as someone that's supposed to win for the last six or seven years. And I think he just thinks I'm going to keep hitting the ball. I'm going to keep doing what I do. And the other thing that I worry about for him a little bit is he's a very high risk. The way he plays is very high risk. He's ripping the ball. He's mm -hmm. going for his shots. And that's great when you're confident and you've been winning. Ben Shelton is an example of someone that plays the exact same way, but all of a sudden he's missing some of those shots yeah. on big points. He's making errors when you're, when your margins are very low mm -hmm. and you lose that confidence, then it's difficult to, to keep the run going. So Right now he's on a run, Chris, and the way he's playing is an amazing. I cannot <laughs> believe his backhand. The, well, that's it. The, the two points I want to make, one, you just said it. Like, the backhand was not there. Like, where was that before? I didn't see it. It was never there. <laughs> it was it was a weakness in an era when there's not obvious weaknesses it's very kinda, often. Is it crazy that someone his age, because I do think the age factor helps him, that the breakthrough happened at this point in his career where he's got maturity. He's always had a good head on his shoulders, but knowing what it's like to grind right. is good, but... Is that rare to you as, you know, an evaluator and a coach yourself that someone develops, uh, turns a weakness into almost a strength at this at this stage in the game? Yes, this late, mm -hmm. yes. That uh, Usually if you're going to, you're, you're recognizing you have a weakness and you're going to work mm -hmm. on it. And if you haven't figured it out by 27, <laughs> then you probably don't, yeah. probably aren't going to figure it out. Having said that, the, the game has gotten mm -hmm. sore. Players are playing longer and longer, and I think they need to continue to improve. That's the thing. The tennis keeps improving, so you got to keep improving just to stay even. Yeah, that run was, I mean, it was insane. Some of the players he beat, how he won a lot of those matches. So him in Atlanta at home trying to have a nice run going into the U.S. Open Series is great. I, someone else I need your thoughts on is Alex Mickelson because this is another prog The progression's been outstanding. Ranked outside the top 1,000 a year ago, now into the top 140. Newport finalist after winning the Chicago Challenger. And I don't know that we expect him to go to college at this point. No, I think he, <laughs> yeah. he would be making a mistake if he goes to college at this point, I think. Just because his career is sort of set as a tennis player. He's, he's a hot commodity at the moment. So if you're a hot commodity, you need to sign your contracts right now. Strike him yeah, on the iron's hot. Yes. Um, how long was he on your radar for, like you personally? Like, how long did you know about him that this potential could be something? Is it recent? Zero. Like, zero. Pretty much. He stayed zero. out in California and, yes. like, wasn't. I, I hadn't seen him. Mm -hmm. And the first I really started recognizing him was he beat Kay Nishikori um, like in the Challenger two weeks yeah. ago. <laughs> yeah. And Kay came back to IMG Academy and I said, what, you know, tell me yeah. about this kid. And he actually had a lot of praise for him. He just said he's he's very good. So I didn't play that badly. I watched the highlights of that match today to kind of get a refresher on it, the challenger highlights, and, yeah, it was a 6-1 third set. What struck out, stood out to me was he saved a lot of break points. It wasn't a runaway third set, like 6-1 beatdown. It was it could have flipped a couple times. He just wouldn't let it. And that's – it was going to get to what you think is most impressive in that Newport run, but he's pretty bold out there. He's, by all accounts, just a gnarly competitor. And it just seems like he is someone that you talked about in other appearances, podcasts and TV, he expects to win. He's learned how to win, which comes from putting it on the line week in, week out. 
winning breeds more winning and he's been winning he's got a little bit of a jensen brooksby ish feel in some yeah. ways um same Brook exact height too same exact height <laughs> and brooksby came on the scene and just won at every level right away and didn't seem to be phased by playing a big name or mm -hmm. he 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 would walk on the court, Brooksby, and think he's going to win. Even Djokovic at the U.S. Open, when they yeah. played a couple of years ago, he uh, yeah. he won the first set 6-1, Brooksby. So I, I think this yeah. Mickelson's got that same attitude. It was funny. Last week on this show, I talked to Robbie Koenig, and he mentioned similar thought processes of something you said where he just wishes some of these young players wouldn't play up as much. And I was like, that's a Jimmy Arias line from, your, from the chat you have with Kamal Murray where – these guys learn how to win because they're they're putting it all on the line. You need to learn how to win. That's the, and and it drives me nuts. Even UTR has become a problem with the with the juniors. Even mm -hmm. because at IMG Academy, I make them play matches, mm -hmm. and UTR they count for UTR. And every kid just wants to play someone with a higher UTR than them because they don't want their UTR to go down. But you're going to lose every time it's, or most of the time. It's just a good story too that a guy like Mickelson could come through with. You know, with not being the front and center prodigy silver spoon all the way through, because if you look at it, like obviously the odds are that it's going to be prodigies that make it all the way through. But it's good to see that there are different paths to get here. And his path changed in the last month. So it did. That's <laughs> that, I mean, it's interesting when you see a player. Dennis Shapovalov to me was the one where I was really amazed at when in the Rogers Masters 1000 when he beat Nadal yeah, as a 17 year old. <laughs> and it was Yes, he's a promising, he's going to be a, a good player. Mm -hmm. And then in one week, he became a pro already. He's on the <laughs> tour. Full, yeah. you, you did it. You made it with just this one run. That loss, too, to Manorino, I mean, that's a tough test, right? You're playing a guy 17 years older who's been around the block. It was his third title, second on grass, which I think shocks some people, myself included, that this guy, his born and bred in France, has been grass's success. But... Tough to play a guy like that, especially when you're not going to get any pace back. <laughs> no, he's a unique player, Manorino, and excellent on grass because he hits the ball where it bounces very low anyway, yeah. and on grass you're absolutely scooping it up. He doesn't give you anything to sort of hit, doesn't yeah. miss much, and he strings his racket at a tension where you can't even hear it hitting his <laughs> racket. It's 20 pounds. The two-racket thing uh, shocked me too. I didn't. I guess I didn't pay much attention how he has a return racket and he has a... I didn't notice that. Yeah, and they were... It was, I think, during Australia where during a tie break he was keeping it on the side so he can just switch. I actually it. did that one, so I, that just means you're it a worked. little bit psychotic. Yeah, I mean, I had a racket that I served better with and a racket that I returned better with, so I just went with it. He's also the guy that says he doesn't even know who he's playing until he shows up, basically. Like, I mean, not shows up, but, like, he doesn't check the draw but doesn't want to know who, like, much. I mean, players tell me that. <laughs> I, I could never. I had to look. More with Jimmy Arias here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, you mentioned his name earlier, Kaney Shikori. Back on tour, back on the ATP, it's been a long road. He got his first ATP win in a couple of years in Atlanta after losing to Mickelson, the Chicago challenger. But a seasoned veteran, a Grand Slam finalist, over 30, and still, I guess, you know, in his mind, something that proved it. Did it shock you at all to hear him say, like, what motivates me is I want to crack at these young guys that are in the spotlight, too? No, not really. I, what amazes me is that actually he's playing because mm -hmm. I thought – about a year ago, right around this time a year ago, he was practicing, and he looked pretty good. And so I went over to him, and I said, Kate, 
you know, you're going to be ready for the open. What are you, what are you looking at? And he had sort of a look of fear in his eyes and no, 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 I'm not, I'm not ready. And then it was a full year and he'd been practicing a decent amount over this time. And I just thought he's never going to play in my mind. I didn't think he'd ever play again. Um, but you know, he, he started, he played a challenger. He started down low and he actually won the first tournament he played in Puerto Rico, even though having going into that tournament in practice, he was struggling with mm-hmm. Jonah Braswell, who you wouldn't know, but a college player right. that played three for Florida. Mm. Um, so he wasn't he wasn't playing great before he left for that Puerto Rican tournament. It just shows you what a he summoned up the old yeah. winning ways. I always thought with Nishikori, and I know it sounds like a, it's like a backhanded compliment, but I always felt like he was one of the players that got the most out of what he could do out there. And if you look back, even in hindsight, some of his major runs to semis, the final run, but he beat players that you would say have more physical gifts and then ended up in, he beat Stan one year at the Open where he went on to his run after. But I feel like Nishikori has always been process-oriented and you know he wasn't going to come back unless this was a possibility to be in it for the long haul. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And he, I think he's going to be ready to play and I'm going to be interested <laughs> to see how he does against those, those young bucks. He's obviously got more to his game than you think. And the reason I say that is early in his career, when he was very young, he played Nadal. And Nadal said, this guy's going to be top five in the world. <laughs> yeah, and, I think I remember and that. N- and Nadal was, you know, right. He yeah. got the four in the world. So he, he takes the ball early. He's very quick. Yeah. And, you know, he, he does things well. Well, one of those young, the young guy that he was most circling like everyone is Carlos Alcaraz. His decision to play the Hopman Cup, did that startle you at all? Was it shocking to see him back on court four days after winning the Wimbledon title? Yes. I mean, I thought I just thought like players like especially in your era, the form that they would be in four days after winning Wimbledon, would they be in any condition to play a match? Probably not. I mean, you wouldn't be looking forward to <laughs> to competing that yeah. next week, certainly. But yeah. look, he's uh, before the Wimbledon final. A couple people asked me and I said. And this maybe sounds crazy, but he at his best level is better than anybody else. He's better than Djokovic. Djokovic can't get to the level. Are we saying historically? Is this the best level you've seen or right now? This is the best level I've seen. Mm. Him at his best. Mm. Um, I didn't know if he was going to be able to bring it in a Wimbledon final against Djokovic, (laughs) but I did also know that he'd be more relaxed than he was at the French. The French was a strange situation for him because he's playing, at the time, a 22-time Grand Slam champion, and he's favored. And that by was a, a wide strange, margin. Yes, too. by a wide margin. And I thought that was a strange mental hurdle for him. In the Wimbledon final, it was the other way. Now Djokovic is favored, mm-hmm. and, and I knew he'd play relaxed, or I thought he would, but it was Wimbledon final. I mean, it's crazy that we're, I mean, obviously this heap and this praise is all deserved. It's only been two years since I think yesterday or a couple of days ago that he won his first title ever. Looking at all the metrics, and it's amazing, like 20 and 10 versus the top 10 in his career startling numbers there and the fact that he has gotten to these metrics like we can project what's in store he's beating he's ahead of the charge where Rafa Djokovic and and Federer were is he in terms of Federer yeah because Federer didn't win right away he won his first slam before all but Nadal and having two on different surfaces is something Nadal didn't have until that point even Djokovic too so that's where I say he's slightly ahead there's a lot of work left to do but that's where winning breeds winning And, and the other point I wanted to bring up was you don't have to lose before you know how to win. 
But that, but that situation at the French Open, having dealt with that, and then regrouping, regrouping resetting, and winning Wimbledon the very next major, that's that was one of the few times I think even now he can make me go wow. Like he he just recalibrated, got back to work, and well, then won it the next time. He actually did it at last summer as well. You might not remember, but in Canada, he was the top seed in a Masters yeah, Tommy 1000 Paul. for the first time, yeah. and he lost to Tommy Paul. And after the match, he said. I wasn't prepared to be the favorite to win a Masters 1000. It just, I felt sort of this weird pressure. And obviously, he's learned to deal with that very quickly. It's it's also worth pointing out that the French Open was the first time that peak, or now peak, Alcaraz, because we don't know where he's going to go, and Djokovic were in the same major. So maybe it's the first time dealing with him being there, and it's like, wow, this is a showdown, which... Again, 22-time <laughs> you know? yeah. major yeah. winner, and uh-huh. you're supposed to win, and you've won one major that yeah. went going into the French. I think mentally that wasn't easy for Alcaraz. And Alcaraz actually was so much more impressive on that road to the semis at the French. He mm-hmm. was play- he had a tougher draw and was dominating his opponents. And Djokovic, you know, was winning, but it wasn't quite as impressive. Are you shocked? I know I keep saying shocked, but I- I'm not surprised that Djokovic pulled out of Canada. Fatigue, whatever you want to call it. I think it's more indicative of he's handling his schedule, he's managing his schedule to peak at majors. That's all that matters. And playing Cincinnati and Toronto is, for lack of a better term, a young man's game. Yes, it is. So I'm not <laughs> not surprised that Toronto's the one that falls by the wayside <laughs> simply because why come on? Yeah. He's got to come a week early and then go somewhere in the state. So it makes sense that he's going to. He modify. said that. I mean, this is even before Alcaraz was a thing. Like, I remember when uh, Bratista Goop beat him in Miami, like years ago, like four or five. And he said, Look, props to RBA, but like, the goal is Grand Slams now. Like, that's what <laughs> he just said that. I mean, he's pretty forthright when he wants to be. And I thought that was pretty straightforward. You know, Nadal's won Canada a bunch and then skipped Cincinnati the following week. But it is a lot of tennis. And you know, he's, I, I think this is actually going to be good, Jimmy, that he has someone that he, he has a new threat emerging, and he can study him. And, you know, I agree with you that maybe Alcaraz's peak is a little higher, but it's still the crafty veteran who has done literally everything there is to do in the sport. No, no, no. I, it's hard. It, that's <laughs> yeah. why I said it's sort of strange for me to say that the greatest player of all time's peak isn't as good as this kid who's yeah. 20 years old. But you watch Alcaraz, and I don't know how he's done it so quickly. He's sort of taken the, the, the big three yeah. and combined all their strengths and put them into himself. He has sort of the offensive weapons of Federer. He's got the heart of Nadal from what we've seen. I mean, <laughs> how does he serve out the final game at Wimbledon in the with playing Djokovic and Djokovic making every... He made every first serve, and Djokovic only missed one return, He's, and it still didn't phase him in any way. I mean, how do you do that? It's amazing. Djokovic wasn't wrong when he said he returned well in that last game. He did. Alcaraz playing the cleanest set of his tournament in the fifth set of a Wimbledon final. Yeah. It's just, it's like, insane. Mr. It's a special kid because he put he puts it all together. Raw gifts, the mentality, the ability to stay positive from Nadal. Yeah, he's got Nadal's <laughs> mentality. He's got Djokovic's defensive skills and Federer's offensive skills. So good luck figuring out how to beat him. But what he doesn't have to me, which is kind of interesting, is... He doesn't have the other two guys. I know that Sinner and Runa, you know, and obviously Djokovic is still around, but I don't know for how long. I'm talking now about can he get to 22, 23. To push him and keep him engaged. Because that definitely did it for the other three. It did. All the other three were knocked off of number one and then got back to the top. And they wouldn't have played till they're 
because they're all trying to be the greatest of all time. Yeah. So they just kept pushing each other. I, I wanted to segue into talking about Medvedev because he was that hardcore run from, you know, post Australia through, I mean, it was just remarkable, the tournament runs. And I know he lost to Alcaraz in there, but he's also following a, a U.S. Open run last year that wasn't good for him. So what do you think is the key for him or this time of the year for him to kind of build on the earlier hardcore success? I mean, he has a game that 99.9% .9 of the players can't deal with, and that is he serves big and he gets through his service games pretty quickly. And then he's very long and makes every return. And so he makes you work for every one of your service games. And mm -hmm. at about four all or five all, it seems as though players crack. They yeah. get tired of that, have to fight for every game on their serve. And then in two yeah. seconds, they're doing it again. Uh, the problem for him is, if he plays a serve and volleyer, so Nick Kyrgios is the guy who... Well, that's what happened twice last year. It happened twice last year. <laughs> yeah. If he plays someone that can serve and volley yeah. very well, he doesn't have a great answer for that. And I think more and more players are at least trying it. They just aren't that adept at it. I hate, I, I don't like always the, the terminology that players get figured out because a lot of times it's just the best in the world that are doing it. It's like, yeah, this guy figured it out because he's the best in the world. But in this case... Nadal, when he came back from two sets down against Medvedev in that Aussie Open a couple of years, two years ago, he was mixing in serve and volleys. And I do think there was a copycat situation with a lot of the players Medvedev played after that. So, you, yeah. I, I'm shocked <laughs> that it didn't happen, you know, way yeah. sooner. If yeah. I was playing Medvedev and I'm, <laughs> I'm dealing with what everyone deals with, there's yeah. a 0% chance I wouldn't have at least tried serve and volley. You're going to lose if you stayed back. Which other players, I know we can throw other names quickly, but which other players do you think can be a factor in this hard court run? Obviously, Djokovic, Alcaraz, and there's guys that people think of, Sinner, Holger, Andre Rublev, when he does switch to hard court, maybe. Any other names out there? Francis Tiafo. I mean, he yeah. had a great um, Tommy Paul. I mean, yeah. uh, we, you know, got to throw some American love in there as well. I think the American players are very flashy. And well, they Fritz can, is one that I feel like should... I don't know, it was a disappointing run for a lot of Americans at Wimbledon. His game seems like on a fast court, he should be right near the top of all these predictions. Agree. Agree. He's one of the, yeah, he's one of the of, other guys. You know. I, it's just, even you saw me sort of snicker maybe when you said Rublev, and the only reason I snickered <laughs> is because as good as he is and as great as he is when it gets to the major, he, he tends to get tight. Mm -hmm. and doesn't get through that big name. He hasn't really had a huge upset at a, at a major yet. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a fair point to make. Uh, and before we wrap this up here on Tennis Channel Insight, and I wanted some, some thoughts on the women's game and where we're going. you got Iga playing her home tournament in Poland. The, top, the other top players will start to take over the North American hardcore events. But in the case of Anjabor not playing in Canada, you know, Iga had her loss. Sabalenka lost a tough one in Wimbledon. The, the idea of, you know, scar tissue at these big events. Now, Anz 0-3 in major finals. You, know, you live that pro tennis life as well as anyone. How real of a thing is that when you are close to the mountain and you have a brutal loss to just pick up, keep going, and try to put your head down and play? I mean, there's it's real partly because she's going to hear it from the press a lot of the time. So at the end, I was five and three in finals, my first eight finals on tour, and I ended up something like five and twelve, or and oh. and as I was losing. As soon as I'd make a final, it would be the first question by the time I'd lost four in a row or yeah. five in a row. So obviously that's going to be something that's foremost on her mind. And it's going to be difficult to, to overcome. 
Yeah, for her especially, because some of the names I mentioned, like even Sabalenka, who's had some the, the last two Grand Slam losses have been brutal, but she does have that major. Yeah, so Ego's won a bunch. Ons doesn't have one. Right. That's <laughs> when you haven't won one, you don't yeah. know if you can. And the fact it doesn't add any help to you when the press is saying, yeah. "Think you can get it this time." <laughs> the Sabalenka thing with the serve is—I just—it's fascinating to me how a player that powerful can still just bottom out at times in, in huge moments. But it's amazing to me that she's gotten s- somewhat over it. Yeah. I mean, compared to what it was, yeah. if you remember a year and a half 400 ago. 400 double faults in a season, she was a top 10 player. Like, it, that's kind of crazy. It's impossible, <laughs> really, what she was able yeah. to do. So the fact that she's, you know, going to cut those double faults by 60%. I I guess the other thing that I wanted to put a bow on is the ego, like, you know, the losses for Delina, not her best match, made a lot of return errors. It happens. Wimbledon's her toughest surface. But I guess I didn't realize how demonstrative she can be. And I'm not saying this like a negative thing necessarily, but she, she she's pretty pissed out there. I, <laughs> I guess I didn't know that. Look, from, from my standpoint, I don't think she's been great for women's tennis because she wears her hat so low that you can't even see her face or her eyes during a match. And so you don't get a connection as much as you could. So I don't mind her getting yeah. angry in some ways because mm-hmm. I want to see I want to see her personality, yeah. and then you can decide. Yeah, and, and yeah, I think this could be a good thing. And it's nice to see her getting pushed this year, too. Another great thing that some women are emerging. Uh, last thing on the women before we put a bow on everything, do you have any you know feedback you'd want to offer to Coco Goff's forehand? Because that's like the talk of... Tennis of course, right now. I think I could help her forehand, to be honest. Yeah. But you know, I, I'm not gonna. <laughs> no, I know. I mean, she can call yeah. me, but yeah. it's okay. it's basically she's she she hits her forehand with her arm. Okay, you need to hit your forehand with your rotation, your big muscles. Your arms just connected, so your arm should be out of it. It's relaxed, it's loose, and your rotation is so, going to hit the ball. And you just learn where the racket face is and get racket head speed. The problem yeah. is she's all arm. And now she's, it's going to be difficult because now it's mental too. She hears about it all the time. So there's a combination of things that's making it more difficult. Yeah. Hearing it's technical and hearing that there's experts out there that could work on this is, is a positive for me. We hope that gets fixed up. I want two quick things to wrap it up here. Jimmy Arias on Tennis Channel Insight. And one being, I want to throw a name at you because a couple of weeks ago, Lindsay Davenport on this show talking about American tennis. Same thing with the guys. When's it going to be? And I have a name, and I want your thoughts because he's in the junior rank. is pretty high. Is Darwin Blanche the real deal? <laughs> <laughs> she mentioned him. She's like, that guy has Grand Slam. That kid has Grand Slam champion ability. The problem I have is I haven't seen him much. Okay. There's two other Blanches at play. Yes. Um, they look fantastic. Okay. They crush the ball. They're athletic, and they haven't quite managed to climb the mountain yet. So is the final Blanche the one? We'll have to see. Yeah, I just the, the crop is what I think we were all looking for. It's tough to put all the expectations on one guy, one kid. But from your perspective, the outlook with the IMG job becoming this generation's Nick Bulletary, what's it look like for you? Like, is this crop a promising one that we're seeing, you know, for the next generation coming up? For Americans? For or Americans. For Americans, I mean... Yes, I think Ethan Quinn, I think Mickelson both um, show promise. I think American tennis is back rising. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's not where it was when it was kind of two countries. It was U.S. <laughs> and Australia. Yeah. They dominated everything, and occasionally there'd be someone else from another country. Mm-hmm. But 
It's never going to get back to that. The competition's yeah. too great. But I think Americans are starting to play very well. We got two in the top ten. No, it's great. It's great to see. We're, we're being factors. Americans are big factors late in the Grand Slam tournaments. It's huge. Uh, Jimmy Arias, this was fun. Do you have one more thing? We're going to try to go to the video for this one. Oh, jeez. Good. Yeah, no, you need you definitely need the sound <laughs> in that video. That was in Montreal last year. I had a... Uh, I had a golf tournament coming um, two days after I was going to get back home, and I hadn't hit a golf ball in a long time. So the, the guy that's filming this is Jesse, Jesse Levine. Levine. Yeah, shout out to him for that. And um, I'm fairly certain he knew it was going to happen because I was just chipping there like yeah, you're supposed to. Right. It was a chipping area. And I told him, I got a tournament. I, I'm going to take a full swing. And, and he goes, I'll video it. He wasn't videoing when no. I was chipping. So that's why I felt like so that was great. a setup. That's, I mean, shout out to Jesse Levine for doing it. Was that supposed to be a flop shot? No, I no, was just, just taking, <laughs> I was just taking because it was a kind of a wiffle ball ball okay. and there was a curtain. I knew it couldn't hurt anybody. Well, well luckily you, you weren't hurt. I know that like the best part of the video that we've all seen a bunch was you putting your hand up trying to Thinking just for a minute, maybe it, it won't go down. Perfect. Yeah, I was wrong. Well, Jimmy Arias, always a pleasure. Story time is the best with you. Great analysis on Tennis Channel calling matches. Good luck going forward into the U.S. Open Series in the broadcast booth and beyond. Thank you, Mitch. Be good. That was Tennis Channel Inside In with Jimmy Arias. We're on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcasts. We're on all your podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music. Subscribe to get automatically downloaded episodes to your tablet or device or your phone. We're back next week, City Open, Washington, D.C. As the road to the U.S. Open starts for Jimmy Arias, I'm Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.